we can have my first slide, Sarah the Harsh. Well, that's not a, mo that's not a very appealing message title, is it? Um, not very flattering to the person concerned. Apologies if you are, if you are Sarah this morning. <laughs> we'll get past that, don't worry. Um, but in Genesis 16 and 21, those passages that were read to us by Dave and Lynn, she doesn't come across in a very positive light. Um, her name is changed between 16 and 17, as Phil has already mentioned. She goes from Sarai to Sarah. Um, I may get them a bit muddled up, but that's kind of what goes on there. Um, but essentially, in chapter 16, we see her ill-treating her slave who's driven into the desert. And then later, she demands that her husband sends her slave away permanently, along with his own son. So maybe it's not all that surprising that some writers have put her down as a harsh or even a spiteful woman. And yet, um, as we've seen already by the writer to, to, to the Hebrews, she is commended for her faith. And that's really what this series is, is all about, work in progress, um, about these heroes of the Old Testament in particular, um, who, with all their flaws, were accepted by God. In essence, they were people like you and me. You know, we may raise them up on a platform and say, you know, what amazing things they did. But at the end of the day, they were works in progress. Um, they weren't perfect by any means. So let's take a closer look at the narrative, and then we'll um, reflect on what that tells us. So, first of all, uh, we read chapter 16, verse 1, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. So our story begins with a childless mother. Difficult circumstance in any age, but in particular in that age and in that culture, it was a huge shame problem to Sarai. In those days, a woman's worth and her status were bound up in her ability to bear children, and in particular, sons, and Sarai was childless. So she did what to us may appear to be shocking. She had a slave, Egyptian slave Hagar. She says to her husband, the Lord's kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Just as a little, very minor digression, slavery is something that you know, we should be opposed to in all its forms. Um, we haven't got time to discuss why in this passage and elsewhere in the Old Testament in particular, it appears to be glossed over. But let's just say for today that at that time, in that culture, at that time, it was culturally acceptable to have a slave. And it was also culturally acceptable to propose what Sarai proposed to her husband, Abraham. Uh, we've got some uh, help outside of the Bible with this. This is the, um, the Code of Hammurabi, uh, one of the earliest and most complete written legal codes from the Near East. Uh, proclaimed by the Babylonian king Hammurabi, who reigned from 1792 to 1750 BC. If you go to Paris and the Louvre, you'll find this seven-foot piece of basalt there. Um, and... Part of it says this. 
If a man has married a wife and she has given her husband a female slave who bears him children, and that's as far as we need to go at the moment, because there it is. There it is in this old Near Eastern code. It was culturally acceptable, an ancient form of surrogate motherhood. However unpleasant it appears to us today, culturally acceptable and practiced. So that's the proposal. Abraham agrees. Hagar, of course, has no say in the matter. Um, Although from what follows, we might conclude that she was agreeable to the idea. Abraham slept with Hagar. Hagar became pregnant. And all might have been relatively well, except that, we read, when she knew, too far, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The Hebrew word means to make, light, to make light of. One translation says her mistress was dishonorable in her eyes. And culturally, this was a serious own goal on Hagar's part. A highly offensive attack on Sarai's person, status, and worth. So Sarah exploded. Abraham got an earful and was told it was all his fault. And Abraham washed his hands of the, fla- of the affair. I can just imagine it. She's your slave. She's not mine. Do what you want. So Sarah is given the green light to handle the affair in whatever way she sees fit. And we read that she ill-treated Hagar. And that verb carries connotations of violence. And the abuse at Sarai's hands was so great that Hagar ran away. But we read an angel of the Lord catches up with her in the desert, persuades her to go back and to submit to Sarai again. So she does. And later in chapter 21, she'll receive another visit from an angel of the Lord. Again, it's something we haven't got time to spend on this morning. But the Lord's help for and promises for Hagar and her son Ishmael are a fascinating and informative insight into God's care for those who are treated unjustly. Um, Great, great verses which we haven't read this morning, but do read those because they're full full of hope. So time passes, chapter 17, Abraham gets his new name, he's 99, um, And he also says to Abraham, the Lord, he says, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. We read that Abraham fell face down and he laughed. And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90 but they believed. Ultimately, they believed, and the miracle happens. And his name, Isaac, means he laughs. He laughs. And Sarah, as she's now known, was finally rid of this shame of child, childlessness. So it should have been happy ever after, after that point, shouldn't it? Except that things get difficult again a few years later, just as Hagar had mocked the mother Previously, now Hagar's son mocks the new boy Isaac. 
Ishmael laughs at Isaac. Ishmael laughs at he laughs. And once again, Sarah flips. She feels threatened. She feels that her son and uh, Ishmael can't coexist. So she says to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. She lashes out. She can't even bear to mention the woman's name or the boy's name. It's that woman's son. It's that woman, that slave woman, that woman's son. She depersonalizes um, the other individuals involved. And this time round, Abraham is distressed because this is not just Sarah's slave she's talking about. This is his own son. But God tells him to listen to his wife, to which I'm sure many women would say a hearty amen today. And Abraham agrees. And Sarah's instruction to Abraham to banish Hagar and her son and send them into the desert is the last that we hear of Sarah until her death is recorded in chapter 23. That's her final act, banishing this woman and her son into the desert, possibly to die. So, that's the story. What are we to make of all this? Is Sarah the Harsh an appropriate epithet for this woman? Well, let's look at the case for the prosecution. So, she places her husband in a morally suspect situation, whatever we think of the cultural context. She places him in a morally suspect situation and then she criticizes him when it backfires. In fact, she doesn't just criticize him, she says that he is responsible for the whole problem. But surely he was only responsible for doing what his wife asked him to do. Was that an amen there for Frank? <laughs> that her slave got pregnant, proving his virility and Sarai's sterility was not his fault. How can she have the gall to appeal to the Lord as her judge? Secondly, Your Honour, she clearly ill-treats her slave. She must be a harsh woman. The Hebrew implies physical violence. Her treatment of the pregnant Hagar is so bad that Hagar thinks running away and taking her chances in the desert is a better option. And what's more, the Lord seems to be on Hagar's side because he appears to her in the form of an angel. He promises her a son, and isn't that the Lord's way to comfort those who are treated unjustly? Thirdly, once her own son Isaac arrives in the scene, she drives Hagar and her son Ishmael away, denying Ishmael, as Abraham's son, a right to any inheritance. Fourthly, she dehumanizes Hagar and Ishmael, doesn't even refer to them by name. They've ceased to be people in her eyes. And lastly, they're spitefully sent packing and it's only by another divine intervention in the desert that Ishmael learns, that Ishmael lives to tell the tale. Once again, God 
comforting the suffering. So I'll rest my case, Your Honour. She should most certainly be known as Sarah the Harsh, is the case for the prosecution. But what about the case for the defence? Because things aren't maybe what they seem. Let's take a closer look. Perhaps Sarai is critical of her husband, not for the pregnancy itself, because that was the plan in the first place, but for tolerating, perhaps even encouraging, Hagar's new attitude to Sarai. Now, we're reading between the lines here. But surely we have to. How else do you explain Sarai's explosive reaction to what she'd envisaged in the first place? Did Abraham share a little chuckle with the younger Hagar, perhaps? That there was nothing wrong in, you know, in his department, so to speak. What went on behind the scenes, we don't know. But why else would Sarai be so angry with Abraham at how things had turned out if there wasn't genuinely some fault on his part? Secondly, in those days, a slave was a person's property, however we feel about it today, to do with as she or he wished. And it's unfair to apply the standards of the 21st century especially 21st century Western standards, to those days in that Middle Eastern culture. Thirdly, back to this code of Hammurabi, let me read a bit more now. If a man has married a wife and she has given her husband a female slave who bears him children, and afterwards that slave ranks herself with her mistress because she has borne children, her mistress shall not sell her for silver, the concubine shall be fettered, and counted among the slaves. So there's no suggestion that Hagar was put in chains. It appears that Sarah, that Sarah treated her better than was required by the law in those days. Fourthly, maybe she was right to deny Ishmael any inheritance because the Lord had promised to Abraham a blessing through his and Sarah's son, not just his son, not the son of a slave woman. And apparently the Apostle Paul agrees. So this is Galatians chapter 4. Oh, that's me fiddling with the microphone. Apologies. Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The, woman, the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Break forth and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So Paul seems to be saying that what actually took place was absolutely right. Sarah was right to deny Ishmael and inheritance, because that wasn't, that wasn't how the promise was intended. And then finally, God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah. 
So it seems to me that Abraham was probably going to refuse Sarah's request. This was his son that she was talking about. And yet God says, or asks Abraham to hear her voice. That's an interesting phrase, to hear her voice. To listen to her pain. To listen to her fears. To find a way of addressing what was actually going on in the family at this time. Surely God is on her side. So the defence would say, I rest your case, my honour. She shouldn't be known as Sarah the um, Harsh. But as Sarah the Fair, what she did was right and appropriate. Sarah the Harsh or Sarah the Fair? Well, what is the judge's verdict, I wonder? And this, I think, is where we come back to Hebrews. Let me read a bit more of what um, was read to us earlier. By faith, even Sarah who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. All these people, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, were still living by faith when they died. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So it appears that the judges verdict God's verdict the only verdict that really counts at the end is that in spite of what may have happened on particular occasions and certain incidents that Sarah was a woman who lived by faith she took this promise that God had made this impossible promise of a child while Abraham was 100 and she was 90 impossible promise and along with Abraham, she believed. She believed. And so despite her failings and despite her apparent harshness, God is not ashamed to be known as her God. And this seems to be what matters most to God. Faith. A confident trust in who he is and in what he has spoken. So she's not Sarah the harsh so much as Sarah the justified, the one who has become acceptable to God because she has believed. Now we might find this difficult, even offensive, um, but let's look into this a little bit more closely because this appears to be God's way. Here's one example. A man is being crucified for crimes he has committed. He acknowledges his own guilt. He says to his fellow criminal, we are being punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he says, referring to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And then to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Well, we don't know what happened in the life leading up to the circumstances of that criminal being executed. But the society of that time, they would know him as the thief, the criminal, the one who got crucified. But I wonder how God remembers him. In a moment, this man acknowledges that he's done wrong and he finds acceptance by Jesus. Faith, it's faith that counts. That might be a difficult one. Here's an even harder one. But let me just offer this story to you. It's 1984 and a woman is on death row for poisoning four people, including her mother, in cold blood. She's about to become the first woman to be executed in the United States for 20 years. But she's been on a faith journey since her conviction. Billy Graham's wife has been writing to her while she's been on death row, speaking to her on the phone for a number of days and weeks. Billy, has, Billy Graham himself speaks to her on the phone the day before her execution. Their son, Anne, will attend the, the execution the following day. By all accounts, this, uh, this woman, uh, Velma Barfield, didn't take what she had done lightly. She had come to a point where she had grasped the horror of what she had done. She'd committed horrible crimes and she knew it. And she didn't take God's forgiveness lightly either because it had cost Christ his life on the cross. She understood that. But now she was putting her faith in God. So again, I wonder... Society will probably remember her as a serial killer. But I wonder how she will be known to God. Well, that last example was a bit extreme. Let's lighten it up a bit, maybe. Uh, this is Joe Bloggs, everyone, according to Google, anyway. Um, so it must be true, obviously. Um, in the USA, he's more commonly known as John Doe or Jane Doe for a woman. It's the average person. He doesn't look very average, does he? Looks far too good looking to be average. But um, it's you and it's me. This is, this is the average person. And we are work in progress. Depending on our signature shortcomings, others might think of us as grumpy or lazy or careless or inconsiderate, or critical, or deceitful, or unreliable, or any number of things. And it's not that we aren't, on occasion, grumpy, or lazy, or careless, or inconsiderate. And it's not that we shouldn't be less grumpy, less lazy, less inconsiderate, less careless. It's that however long our list of faults, God values faith. God values faith. And those heroes in Hebrews 11, as Phil said right at the start, none of them were perfect. None of them were perfect. Noah, well, he got drunk and exposed himself. Jacob, he was a deceiver. Abraham himself, he lied on a couple of occasions about his wife. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. 
and on and on we go. Imperfect people, people with flaws, works in progress. And yet, Hebrews 11.39, they were all commended for their faith. And Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So this is, this is the bottom line, if you like. We are works in progress, but we too can put our faith in God and find acceptance. So I want to close with some words from another uh, Bible hero, another work in progress, the Apostle Paul. He knew he wasn't perfect, but he rejoiced in the fact that God had shown him mercy and that he'd received the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, is the phrase he uses in Philippians 3. And then he goes on to say this. I'm not saying I have all this together, that I've made it, but I'm well on my way, reaching out for Christ, who so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back. I'm not perfect. I've not finished the race. But I'm off, and I'm running, and I'm not turning back. May that be our testimony too. Amen.